Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Friday flip, stock markets rebound after Thursday's tumble. Twitter's takedown, 170,000 pro-China accounts removed for manipulation, and peace, love, and ice cream. Ben and Jerry's proposals to end racial injustice. It's Friday. Let's make a move. first move. Great to be with you as always. And as I mentioned there, we're looking at a Friday flip for stock markets after Thursday's thwack. Not even sure that's a real word. Quick, take a look at the global picture right now. That's looking a bit more healthy. A healthy bounce here in the United States following the worst day for stocks since mid-March. The Dow actually fell almost 7% yesterday. This S&P 500 and the Nasdaq were not far behind. The small caps got hit hardest with the Russell 2000 the most exposed as a result. Remember the Russell 2000 here is uh, the market that most represents those stocks that are domestic focused in the United States. So um, no surprise actually that we saw that falling some some and a half percent. The trigger here, a reality check over the health risks amid rising hospitalizations. Maybe the fact that we've seen a 40% rally from the lows virtually without pause too. I think you can take your pick here. Consolidation though when you're seeing rising markets is normal. But renewed talk of additional U.S. stimulus may be helping the mood a little here today too. I want to hone in as well on the Asia session where we saw little spillover effect really from the turmoil elsewhere. Look, they were in the red, but nowhere near the declines that we saw in the United States. Perhaps the timing and the handling of the virus outbreak is critical. A distinction point here too. Chinese stocks managed to finish flat. And we got news from Singapore too overnight, suggesting the economy could be near fully reopened by the end of the month. We keep fingers crossed on that. A stark contrast, clearly, to what we're seeing here in the United States. Take a look at the VIX volatility index, the fear gauge. It's a gauge of increased levels of concern. It spiked almost 50% yesterday. The big question now, of course, what next? Well, let's get to the drivers and find out. Brian Levitt joins us now. He's global market strategist at Invesco. Brian, great to have you with us. What do you make you. of the pullback that we saw yesterday? I mean, the market had staged such a furious advance off of the bottom. I think it left all of us a little bit flummoxed at just why it went up so rapidly. Look, it's, it's not to say that there wasn't a reason for the markets to go up. Policy was very forceful and things were getting a bit better with regards to cases in some of the hardest hit areas and some pickup in mobility and resumed economic activity. But this was never going to be a light switch. This was never going to happen um, with a reopening overnight. And, you know, so when you got to the levels that we got, you needed a catalyst to go higher. Unfortunately, 
that catalyst was some pickup of cases in in select states, and, and that was a, a catalyst to drive markets lower. It was bound to happen. Um, it's going to be a, a volatile period, period for some time until we have greater clarity around, around reopenings and resumption of economic activity. Is the momentum still upwards? Because if I look at the breakdown of what's driven us higher, it was stocks like technology, healthcare, big box retailers, those that are benefiting most during this painful period. It's only in the last week and a half to two weeks where we'd seen some of the cyclical stocks like the banks, the airlines, those hardest hit actually join and we saw greater breadth in this rally. Ordinarily, that would be a good thing. So how do we circle that square or vice versa? Yeah, I mean, widening breadth is a good thing um, so long as you get that positive catalyst and carry through in the real economy. And look, I I think that we will ultimately get there. We'll get through this period and, and a medical breakthrough or scientific breakthrough will emerge that will unlock some of this value in the early cyclical, economically sensitive parts of the market. But but the problem in the near term is it's going to be halting. You, you see what happens with cases in places like Arizona or Texas, and that, and that spooks the market out of those parts. So from my perspective, I think that you know, there will be some churn in the market. I think we'll be higher a year from now, but I want to continue to be positioned to your point on those true growth companies that can take advantage of what might be a prolonged halting uh, recovery, um, you know, one that doesn't just happen overnight, but one that takes a very long time to emerge. And, and in that environment, which is likely to be a prolonged slow growth environment, I want to be exposed to those companies that can continue to grow in this world. Yeah, it makes total sense. We can continue to track the number of cases of coronavirus, but that's complicated by increased testing and always has been. What also seemed to catch investors' attention yesterday was that 12 states are seeing increased hospitalizations. If I compare and contrast that to Treasury Secretary Mnuchin also saying yesterday, look, we can't shut down the U.S. economy again. We, we know what the economic consequences are. If the bar for further shutdown going forward is incredibly high, is that comforting despite the risks? You know, we, we do. We have to bet four for four with regards to policy. So whether that's monetary well, That's a shame because I was interested in that answer. Brian, we're struggling with. You can hear me. Thank you so much for your insights there. We'll answer that question. Paula Monica comes up later on in the show and we'll talk to him about that. He was, of course, the global market strategist at Invesco there, Brian Levitt. Let's move on to our next driver. The UK economy saw its worst monthly decline on record in April, GDP falling by 20%. That month alone, as virus lockdown measures came into full force. Anna Stewart joins me now. Perhaps, Anna, no surprise when you put an economy into lockdown that you see growth fall. The question is, how quickly and to what extent can you bring it back and bring jobs back at the same time? Uh, I mean, an extraordinary and terrifying contraction there for April. If you add it to the month before, it means the UK economy shrank by nearly a quarter in just two months. I mean, this is completely unprecedented. Now, those numbers are, of course, backdated. We're looking backwards. Since then, lockdown has slowly eased for some businesses, for some industries. So I think we can see that this is probably going to be the very bottom of 
that contraction for the next few months. However, it is very severe. How does the UK recover? This is what economists are questioning. Will we see that V-shaped recovery that the Bank of England was so hopeful for? Perhaps not. And I think the biggest risk at this stage to any kind of recovery is the risk of mass unemployment. Uh, now about a quarter, in fact, I think over a quarter of the workforce in the UK is on the government's furlough scheme. So their salaries are being propped up by the government. That will start to taper as of next month. So two and a half weeks time, uh, companies will start to have to pay a, a small amount towards that furlough scheme. Now, for some businesses, even if they can reopen, what they're looking at here is, well, how can I introduce all these social distancing measures? Can I still make money like this? Do I need the same level of staffing? What about customer demand? For many businesses, they simply will not be able to sustain the staff levels they've had before. So we could see that unemployment number really rise much, much higher in the coming months. And that is the biggest uh, threat to the recovery and why lots of people want to see the government doing a little bit more to help some sectors. Julia? Astonishing, isn't it? A quarter of the UK workforce on this scheme now, effectively backed by the government. And there is another risk out there, and that is, of course, the transition period following Brexit ends at the end of this year. There are already senior calls to say, look, we're simply going to have to extend the transition period. Talk me through Brexit risks here, Anna. Risks here, Anna. Julia, I have just reconnected my IFP. I'm so sorry, I did not hear your question. If you could repeat it. Oh, can you hear me now though, Anna? It's Friday, we're allowed to have technical issues. No, she can't. Oh, well, well, we had planned to talk about Brexit, as you heard my question, but she can't hear me finish. So we'll have to move on. Wow. All right, let's talk Twitter and hope for the best on this one. Twitter has deleted more than 170,000 accounts with ties to the Chinese government. The social media giant says the accounts were spreading misinformation about the Hong Kong protests, coronavirus and recent protests, of course, in the United States. Beijing, meanwhile, rejects those claims. Donny O'Sullivan is here with more. Donny, I'll check first of all. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and oh, clear. So this is good news. This is this very work. good news. Let's hope I keep you with us. OK, break this down for me. What proportion of these accounts were core accounts? What proportion were amplifiers, just amplifying the misinformation message, according to Twitter? Sure. So Twitter told us yesterday that they found about 23,000 accounts, which were what they call core accounts, which were basically posting the propaganda, posting messages saying, you know, that China had handled COVID-19 in a very responsible way, um, attacking protesters in Hong Kong. A lot of these uh, accounts were tweeting in Chinese languages, but some of them were also tweeting in English. So you have that core 20,000 accounts, but then there was a a bigger network of 150,000 accounts that were retweeting and liking those messages to make those messages appear more popular than they actually were and of course getting them into more users feeds and of course it's worth remembering that Ch- Twitter is is banned in China but the the government there is seemingly uh, use very active users of the service to shape our perceptions um of 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 geopolitical events uh, around the country um but I mean, really, when you think about this, 170,000 accounts, and this is just one takedown that Twitter Twitter does multiple of these a year. 
But this is how big a business misinformation is online. There are so many governments and, and other groups around the world that are trying to shape and influence our thoughts uh, through our social media feeds, Julia. It just makes me want to bang my head down on the desk. We knew that there was political interference in the 2016 election. Once again, we're in an election year and here we are seeing efforts, huge efforts, but still what a momentous challenge this is. Donnie, something that you said there, though, just caught my attention. Who was the target of this misinformation? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, misinformation here can have have multiple targets, right? So there are people who can still access, of course, Twitter in China using VPNs and different things like that. So it could be China's own citizens, but it could also be um, the Hong Kong protesters themselves to try and either inflame them or to rile them up further. And also it can be, you know, folks looking on from from Europe and, and the United States. It can be to try and to to shape our perceptions of what is happening uh, in Hong Kong. You know, one thing that we often see with misinformation, um, particularly around with ongoing sort of racial uh, protests here in the U.S., is that oftentimes the, the, the people that seem to be the target of the misinformation are not the actual target. So what we've been seeing here in the U.S., for example, is that far-right activists, actually white nationalists, have been setting up fake Antifa profiles, uh, promising violence, calling for violence on U.S. streets. Of course, people who are on the right, Donald Trump, for instance, who is who is talking about how great Antifa threat is, points to a tweet like that. You know, his supporters will point to a tweet like that to say, see, these guys are violent. But actually... The, the, the impact is, is not to call for violence for from the Antifa supporters, but more to rile up uh, the other side. So it's, right. it's a complex and a, a pervasive uh, issue. And it's, it's one that, as you mentioned, in an election year is going to be incredibly challenging for these companies. Yeah, we needed to do more sooner. Tony O'Sullivan, great job explaining that because it is complicated. But the cross paths here are also very important to understand. Thank you for that. Thanks, Julia. All right. Here are some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The governor of Washington state says President Trump should stay out of the state's business. And the mayor of Seattle says any invasion of the city would be illegal. The president threatened to use federal forces to intervene in Seattle's protests. Demonstrators there have taken over a neighborhood after police temporarily withdrew. Coronavirus infections are spiking across Latin America, according to Johns Hopkins University. South America and the Caribbean have now recorded more than 1.5 million cases. Over 800,000 people have been infected in Brazil alone. Meanwhile, in Colombia, the number of confirmed coronavirus cases is also steadily rising. The pandemic is adding to the misery of many Colombians who are already struggling with income inequality, unemployment and homelessness. Stefano Posibon reports. Three months ago, Lilibet Fori had a job in the house, but the pandemic took nearly everything away from her. Like almost half of the entire Colombian labor force, Lilibet worked informally, first as a caregiver in private homes and then as a street vendor. Lockdown measures against coronavirus meant she has seen no income since March, and to make things worse, her house was bulldozed at the beginning of May. The city says it was unsafe, but now she can't find a home. She has no job and rental accommodations are scarce during the pandemic. Now she can only look at what remains of her house. Before the virus, we had a life. Now we don't. 
We don't know what we're going to eat or what's going to happen to us. Colombia may have been spared the worst of the health crisis, but the economy is suffering. Unemployment almost doubled in Colombian cities since the beginning of the lockdown. And without a job, the people who were displaced from this area are saying that they're facing a life on the street. Lilibet and 60 other people now live in tents, an impromptu settlement just meters away from where the houses used to stand. Now the pandemic has only added to the frustration of people like Lilibet, who says she took to the streets in November last year to demand social change. It has also increased the disparity between those who can afford the quarantine and work from home and those who cannot. By one estimate, as many as 7 million Colombians could fall back below the poverty line by the end of the year, a level not seen since 2002. Fabian Marroquin also took part in the protests last year when he was working as a cook. Now unemployed, his home near Lilibet also demolished. He thinks a return to the streets is the only way for things to change for the better. The government slogan is stay at home, but where should I stay if they took away my home? The Colombian government has so far pledged $74 million to prevent layoffs, but little of those resources are designed to help the informal economy. Colombia is now lifting some quarantine measures while still trying to control the virus. It's a thin line between the health crisis and the economic collapse. Stefano Pozzebon, CNN, Bogotá. Inequality challenges all over the world. All right, still to come, a cold call for action on racism from ice cream brand Ben & Jerry's. We speak to the CEO about their mandate for change and a leg up from year up, the firm that aims to boost minority hiring and help tackle pay inequality. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where we're looking like we're headed towards a positive open this morning, retracing some of the near 7% losses for the Dow in yesterday's trading session. Just one stock, in fact, in the S&P 500 finished higher yesterday, and many of the travel and leisure stocks that were hit hard yesterday set to bounce today as well. These have become some of the favorite names for momentum traders and retail investors betting on a rapid economic comeback. We know that's going to be challenged all right, let's move on. To cut America's racial wealth gap, we need to close the skill gap. The skills gap, that's key. This is what the non-profit organization Year Up is doing through training programs for young people of color. It wants to help them move from minimum wage jobs to more rewarding careers in just one year. Year Up has partnered with over 250 corporations, including the likes of Amazon, Microsoft, and Bank of America. Gerald Chertavian is the founder and CEO of Year Up. He started his career on Wall Street, but soon discovered that nurturing young talent and underprivileged communities people was his calling. And what a great one it is. Great to have you with us, Gerald. Um, just in your own words, because I think this is important, explain what the mission is with Year Up. Sure. And thank you, Julia, for having me today. Um, so, Year Up is a, a national nonprofit organization that works with uh, low-income uh, 18 to 24-year-olds. And in one year, uh, we enable those young people to move from either no wage or low wage to livable careers with some of the very best companies uh, in the world. How do you go about selecting the students, the young people that you bring on to this program? What are you looking for in terms of attributes? 
So uh, our young adults, uh, we look for motivation. Look for a young person who says, I want uh, a hand up. I don't need a handout. I need a hand up. I need an opportunity. We look for those students who have an interest in what it is we are teaching. So we work a lot in technology, financial skills, customer service skills. And someone who says, I want to work in a great organization like a Salesforce, a LinkedIn, a Bank of America, and wants to build that career path. And we're able to look that young person in the eye and say that if you work hard for one year, you are going to achieve that job, which on average for our graduates is about $42,000 per year. Wow. I mean, this is incredible. So this is not going into some minimum wage or even less in certain cases role. This is a higher paying start to a career. And I think this is an important distinction to what you're trying to provide here, what you are providing. Absolutely. And in many of those roles, if you think of middle skills in large corporations, um, it's been very hard for folks who don't have the access, who don't have the network, who perhaps uh, may not have had the role modeling to see how do I connect? Um, what are the attitudinal, behavioral and communication skills needed to perform and excel in those environments? Um, so we make sure those young people learn not only things that are marketable, like technology, but also the professional skills that are critical to uh, not only get that job, but to advance in your career uh, at um, our leading companies across the world. It's really phenomenal. Talk to me about what steps that some of these corporations can take, because I certainly hear from leadership that finding talent, finding these individuals in order to try and support minorities and ethnic mix in your workforce, the diversity in your workforce is a huge challenge. What are some of the easy criteria changes that perhaps these companies that can make that will allow them to access more people, more sure. talent, let's be clear, from, from these kind of communities? Absolutely. And this, you know, let's just start. This is good for business and it's good for our community. Um, one of the things business can do right away is to check their four-year degree requirements. So many companies reflexively put the requirement for a four-year degree on just about every job that they post. And the reality is that a lot of those jobs do not require a four-year degree. But when you say four-year degree required, you're excluding from the start 86% of Latinos and 79% of African-Americans. So the first thing I would do is if I was a CEO is call up your HR director and say, where do we have those requirements for a four-year degree? Why do we have them? And have we looked carefully at whether we truly need to have those for the, all of the jobs that we'll be hiring for? So that's step one. Um, step two is to have very deliberate uh, practices to uh, find and hire talent from pre-baccalaureate places, yeah. right? Whether our community college system, some of our community-based organizations, but companies have to operationalize um, pre-baccalaureate hiring just like they've operationalized campus recruiting. So you get to build that muscle for organizations. And I'll tell you, Julia, it's not that the talent is not there. For many years, corporate America has fished in one pond where there are frankly fewer fish and the prices going up. And there's a whole nother pond with incredibly talented millions of young adults who are hungry, motivated, who want to work hard, and they just need that opportunity and that hand up 
in order to gain a foothold in a livable wage career that they can take care of themselves and their families. It's so important, just a small step. Remove that four-year degree requirement, expand that fishing pond or that pool, as you're describing, incredibly dramatically. Very quickly, because I have around 30 seconds left. What proportion of the students that undergo this year-up training actually stay on with the companies that they work for and become an employee? How, how, how can we um, judge the metrics here? Sure. So um, 90% of our graduates on average have a successful outcome, which is fantastic. And we know our young adults on average stay between two and four times longer in the roles they're placed in than alternative sources of talent. So our students not only come in and perform, but they are loyal, they're hardworking, they're not entitled, and they want to build a career with these organizations. We just need our CEOs to step up at this time in our country's history and provide opportunity for those young adults. Yeah, the time is nigh. What a great system. Well done. Founder and CEO of Year Up, Gerald Chetavian. So stay safe and uh, stay in touch. We'll continue to talk about your Julia, progress. Julia, thanks so much for having me. Wish you a good Thank day. You. Be well. You too. All right. The market opens next. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Friday as we begin winding down. Well, it's been a pretty volatile week for markets. Let's be clear. As expected, we do see stocks in the green. That's 2.7% higher for the Dow. Remember, compare and contrast with the 7% near losses that we saw on yesterday. We do see the Dow and the S&P on target to close higher. In fact, for the first time since Monday, if we can hold on to these gains Financial stocks are on the rise after double-digit losses for some of the big names yesterday. Banks fell after the Federal Reserve signaled that interest rates won't rise until 2023 at the earliest. Low rates, of course, pressure bank profits. It was also a warning about just simply how long the recovery will take. That's good, not good news for credit, of course, in the system. Things like loans for houses and credit card repayments. Hopes for further U.S. stimulus, though, may be lending some support here, too. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin says the White House is considering sending a second round of emergency checks to Americans. Paula Monica is here with more on the market reaction. Paul, ordinarily stock markets never go in one direction for the degree and the length of time that we've seen a 42 percent rise. Some pullback was expected, and we were discussing this earlier this week. Exactly. We seem to have just gotten it all in one day. I mean, yesterday did surprise me that we had so many people that seemingly woke up and were of the mindset that, oh, wait a minute, there might be a second wave of COVID-19 and the Fed is going to keep rates near zero for several years. Neither of those would have been or should have been surprises to the markets. But I think many investors had been just blissfully uh, ignoring some of the risks that are still out there. And now today it's risk back on. You mentioned the banks, Julia, but I think what we're also seeing is the reopening of America trade coming back into play. You look at airlines like United and Delta, they're surging this morning. Carnival Cruises back up, I think double digit gains at the open. So these are the types of stocks that have been surging because people were hoping that normalcy would return to America. And that trade is back again today. 
Paul, I'm going to throw at you a question that I tried to ask Brian Levitt at the beginning of the show, and we had some technical issues. And I mentioned the fact that Stephen Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary, had said, look, we can't shut down the U.S. economy again, that the bar for doing what we've been through again is incredibly high here. Do you think investors also drawing perhaps some comfort from that as well? The economic risks here are too great to, to shut down once again. It's possible. I think that clearly investors don't want to see the U.S. economy grinding to a halt again and people sheltering in place and self-quarantining to the extent that we had in March and early April. But that being said, if we have a second wave and that leads to a large number of people that are hospitalized and worse passing away from COVID-19 related uh, symptoms, then I think we may have, you know, self-quarantining becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. Investor, I mean, consumers aren't going to rush back to go see movies in a theater, even if there is social distancing, if all of a sudden there are lots of headlines again about a second wave and people needing to be concerned about COVID-19, because we know that it's a highly contagious disease. And even if you take precautions like wearing a mask, you're putting yourself at risk going back out into the open if all of a sudden there is a, a high prevalence of cases once again. Hopefully we yeah. don't get there, but I think that is the risk. And this is the key. That bar for shutting down again may be really high, but the science and the virus itself may take that decision away, decision away from you and, and make it a necessity. And that's one of the big risks Yeah, people here. may shut down themselves, even if they're not told to by federal and state governments. Precisely. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. Now, on to another one of our top stories. A growing number of Silicon Valley firms say they'll donate to groups working for racial, racial justice following the death of George Floyd. The corporate workplace platform Slack is among them. CEO Stuart Butterfield and his partner Jen Rubio, the co-founder of Away, are giving at least $700,000 to Black Lives Matter and to other organizations. And joining us now, Slack CEO Stuart Butterfield. Stuart, always great to have you on the show. This is not a new issue. Why did it take so long for people, particularly big corporates, to react in the way that many have here? It's a great question. And I, I, uh, it's hard to deny that the images that we all saw um, on social media and on CNN and, and elsewhere over the last couple of weeks really opened people's eyes. I mean, I think um, black people have been telling us for a long time that this was the reaction. Um, this was the kind of relationship they had with police. And I think we all saw it. You know, it's interesting. I had a look on your website and you produce a really comprehensive diversity at Slack paper statistics. It's full of charts and it's pretty incredible, actually. It's one of the most comprehensive that I've read. Talk to me about the progress that you're making on, and what more you want to achieve. Well, it's been actually really interesting. So uh, I don't remember the first year that we published a report, but it's been around five years and, and maybe six. Um, in the early days, the real challenge was attracting underrepresented minorities in tech specifically. So we're a technology company, but obviously we employ people in business roles and, and customer support and elsewhere. And the challenge for the industry has been finding um, black engineers, other people of color in, in engineering. That we've made good progress on and obviously still more to go, but we're bringing up the average a little bit. And I think that's where our attention had been. And now what we found is we're behind on, on the business side. So um, it's, it's a very... Uh, 
look, everything's everything's tied together. So I think the reason that criminal justice reform is part of the conversation, police brutality is part of the conversation, along with differential rates in pay and, and hiring, is because they're all connected. And um, we've tried to make efforts um, in, in a pretty broad array. And ultimately, I think the thing that matters uh, most for us and for most technology companies is are you able to retain employees? Are you able to hire them? Or is it yet another place at which they'll fall out of the industry? Yeah, but you know, I have to commend you because you do publish statistics for uh, different, what your ethnic mix is, for men, for women, at different categories as well, at different management level categories as well, which I think is something where we need to see full disclosure. We need to understand what's going on in the businesses and you guys do that. Um, you also point out in this, and I do think it's very important, an estimated 1 million U.S. engineering roles will go unfulfilled in 2020. I know COVID probably has, has complicated this in many ways, but you are a company that's part of a conversation we were just having with Year Up to try and bring in people to do an internship, to bring them over. And you've had some success with that, too. These programs are critical. Yeah, we actually, we've been working with Europe for a couple of years. Uh, this year, I believe it was 87.5% of our uh, interns through, through Europe were hired. Um, we also work uh, in kind of at the other end of the spectrum with um, uh, John Legend's Free America, the Kellogg Foundation, um, a group called The Last Mile, on a program called Next Chapter, which is creating real engineering jobs, so like high paying um, jobs for formerly incarcerated people. So obviously there's a lot of training there, there's an apprenticeship program. There's challenges both in the in the culture of it, but also um, in the regulatory environment. There's a lot of uh, probably misguided laws, or I'm happy to say misguided laws that prevent uh, people with felony convictions from working in certain yeah. parts of the technology industry or having access to certain kinds of data. So that's been a challenge to work around. Yeah, people have served their time. They have to be allowed to change their lives off the back end. Um, I agree with you. Um, I have to ask you specifically about the business because um, we talked about your message to Microsoft the last time you were on. And I did happen to notice that you described in a recent interview um, as Microsoft being unhealthily preoccupied with killing Slack. It was an interview with The Verge. Um, and that was described as, as the perception within your company. Um, anything you want to sort of add to that or... Um, context do you want to provide because it is kind of uh, an ongoing debate in the industry it, it is <laughs> a little bit coming on my show. yeah i mean i would say um uh it's been several years since they uh included us in their in their take 10k filings listing us as a competitor we obviously listed them um I think it's it's pretty unique to be, especially given the differential in size, when we were uh, one two hundredth their size, them putting out a press release saying that uh, Teams is beating Slack and better than Slack. Um, I think what we've seen over the last couple of years, you know, for us, we had a just a blowout quarter, obviously related to what's going on in the world, but continuing to win in the largest enterprises in the world. So we, uh, Verizon and Amazon. Uh, Company-wide were uh, big wins that we announced this last quarter, but that follows on you know huge success in retail and financial services and healthcare um, in the in the government. Um, we just in fact completed our what's called the FedRAMP Moderate Program, sponsored by the Veterans Affairs uh, Department. So the message is understand the difference between the two products here and what they're providing. Yeah, and yeah especially with this time, there's, there's a lot of changes, and, and uh, leaders and executives are having to you know, uh, work through multiple 
crises and, and a lot of anxiety kind of in the background. And at the same time, trying to figure out how to operate it and manage their businesses in an all remote environment, which is a new challenge for many. So I think what we've seen is just a acceleration down the timeline of digital transformation across the board. Stuart, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Um, a lot of great work going on there. Stuart Butterfield, thank you for that. All right, up next, Ben & Jerry's recipe for change, the ice cream maker, coming up on tackling racism. Peace, love and ice cream. That's Ben & Jerry's motto, and the ice cream maker is taking a strong stand to make it a reality for all Americans. Ben & Jerry's issued one of corporate America's earliest and most forceful condemnations of George Floyd's death, calling it the result of inhumane police brutality that is perpetuated by a culture of white supremacy. Joining us now, Matthew McCarthy, the CEO of Ben and Jerry's. Great to have you with us, Matthew. The founders of Ben and Jerry's have never been afraid of standing up for what they uh, they see as right. But you have produced a four-point plan as a company that you want to see enacted. The first talks about you want bold action from President Trump to condemn what you view as white supremacy in the United States. But the second thing caught my attention too: the cost paid by black and brown people in America in redress. What do you mean by redress? Thanks very much for having me. This topic is not new to your point for Ben no. and Jerry's. Back in 2016, we were on record in supporting a Black Lives Matter. And I, I think it flows from the values that uh, Jerry and Ben have built into to our business. And I, on, your, on this point about reparations, I think that that can be a scary topic for a lot of white Americans. I know when I first heard the term reparations, I had an immediate reaction of, well, wait a minute, hold on a second. But to be blunt, the um, uh, white America needs to get over uh, its trepidations uh, about uh, the damage that has been caused to black America and and people of color through the systems and the structures in our country that are frankly racist. And that may be hard for some people to hear, but the same way that gender equity is not a problem for women to solve, a white supremacy culture is something that white people have to own. And that includes business people where so much of the economic engine of our country lies. We as business people have to be part of the solution and not delegate that to government or, or others. We have to be able to have the conversation. Do you think, to use your term, white America can get over it? And do businesses have to be prepared to lose customers through taking a stand if they won't get over it? Uh, I, uh, th this moment is an incredibly painful one in our country, and it's uh, the killing of George Floyd and many others by white people. Uh, this is not new. Uh, and so the, the short answer is white America has to be part of the solution. That's the only way we're going to move forward to actually unlock the promise that America can be. America is an incredible country. It's a great place and it needs to be made better. White people need to lead that, myself included, included a white male of a lot of privilege in my life. And the second part of your question is absolutely yes, uh, business. And we run a business at Ben and & Jerry's and we sell ice cream. Um, and we need to do more at Ben and & Jerry's, and I think all business leaders create economic opportunity through their entire system. White, uh, um, white supremacy, structural racism exists everywhere, and, and I think that may be difficult for some people to get their heads around, 
Um, the bigger part of the iceberg of racism in America is not the part over the water. It's the part underneath. It's the structures. It's the systems that very often we as white people, myself included, don't actually understand. And so doing the root cause analysis within your business and across your business system, all of your partners, uh, all of your suppliers, uh, what kind of things are actually holding back uh, economic uh, value creation for people of color and specifically black people in America. You raise such a good point, and they're separate, but they're clearly very connected. And that is part of this is about tackling inequality, raising salaries, better education, making sure that businesses have a better diversity mix, because we tend to talk a good game on these things, but actually we don't see it coming out in the numbers. For Ben and Jerry specifically, talk to me about your diversity. What steps you take to actually put in action in terms of your business and your suppliers, the message that you're also sending here with, with bold statements about what's required? Yeah, um, that's a great question because words are nice, statements are great. Um, statements don't change the world, actions change the world. Uh, ben & Jerry's is a very white company. Uh, we're from Vermont, which happens to be a white state. We love Vermont and we, we, we love the, the track record that Ben and & Jerry's and our teammates have created. And it is also true that we have to ask ourselves, well, why are we such a white company? Why don't we have more franchisees in our scoop shops who are people of color, minority-owned, black-owned? And so over the past couple of years, we've actually put specific actions in place, a specific work stream uh, with KPIs around it to build that education internally. We brought in outside experts to help coach us, to help guide us on understanding what might systemic racism look like within our business, and that's training for individuals, education for individuals, and specific workshops around um, tackling um, structural racism within our business. And I think also we've got a huge opportunity, again, through our, our, our business system, all the, uh, our, our farm workers, our farmers, our tremendous employees that work in manufacturing that are working so hard uh, to keep up the demand for our ice cream, really looking uh, deeply at all of those things. It starts at home. Uh, it starts within our business. So while we may make statements, uh, we've got a very specific program in place to actually address the root causes and to understand them more deeply. We've got a long way to go, Julia. I, I'll i never brag. Uh, we we, we are, think of ourselves as an aspiring social justice company, and we've got a long way to go. And, and I want to be clear about that because I think other business folks need to um, embrace the areas that are not right within their businesses as a step to to making the right choices. Yeah, we all have as workers, as consumers, as friends, as colleagues. We, we all have to continue to have this conversation and get educated. Matthew McCarthy, great to have you with us. The CEO Thank of Ben and Jerry's. I do have to say I love fish food. Fish food is the best. Thank you. All right, still to come. The big unveil, Sony lifts the curtain virtually on its new PlayStation, but some mystery still remains. That's next. A treat for gaming fans now as Sony has unveiled the latest version of its highly successful console, PlayStation 5. We finally know what it looks like and what games will be available to play, but the big questions of when it comes and how much it costs remain unanswered. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Very space age, the image there. Claire, what do we know? 
Well, Julia, as you say, this was a huge moment for the gaming community. It's been a, a seven-year period since the release of the PlayStation 4, and PlayStation has dominated the last cycle. So this was a really big deal, especially in the absence of, of big gaming events like E3 because of the, uh, the pandemic. So as you say, this was the first time we saw the actual console, what it looks like. It's pretty spacey. It's pretty unusual. There are as well two versions. There's a digital-only version that doesn't have a disk drive. This is pretty new. Could this spell the sort of gradual end uh, of stores that sell physical games and even online stores like Amazon uh, and Walmart that make money off these things? That is a big question going forward. Of course, Games were the biggest deal for, for people who are looking to buy this device. There were some new exclusives that were announced for the PlayStation. The Spider-Man sequel, Spider-Man, Mike Morales, is, that's a really big deal. Spider-Man, uh, that Marvel franchise, is basically the best-selling PlayStation game uh, of all time. So no surprises there that they wanted the sequel. There's also an enhanced version of Grand Theft Auto V. There's a new game called Horizon Forbidden West, which is the sequel to Horizon Zero Dawn. As you say, though, still a lot of mystery surrounding the price. And that really is something to watch, especially since the PlayStation 5 is set to launch sometime in the fall, sometime before uh, the holidays, and will go head-to-head with the new Xbox, the Xbox Series X. I think the big question, given that, that Sony is not doing great in terms of, uh, of cash flow at the moment, they've been right. pummeled by the pandemic, their other units, will they try to subsidize these units to go up uh, against Microsoft's Xbox, Microsoft, a much richer company, uh, or will they, will they charge a little more to protect their own bottom line? Yeah, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? There were all sorts of dummy listings and fake suggestions of what it might cost. I think one of those was £599 sterling, but I think that could be fake news. So it was discredited on social media as well. My favourite comparison of what this console actually looks like, though, goes to Lord of the Rings. I don't know whether you saw one as well, Claire. There were comparisons of duck beaks and sandwiches. I think we've got the image. My personal favourite. Oh, that wasn't my personal favourite. How distressing. Claire, is that yours or is that rogue? <laughs> but a few, uh, Julia. The, the, the memes have been coming thick and fast. There's been uh, the, the, the helmets from the Guardians, from Destiny. As you say, the Tower of Mordor uh, from Lord of the Rings. There, there's some with goggly eyes. I think that might be Toy Story looking it's like it's going to eat. All part of the, uh, the, the so We have console. to wrap up the show. I'm being um, told off. Claire, we have to go. <laughs> Great to chat to you as always. Happy Friday. That's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe this weekend. We'll be back Monday. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.